chapter 21, John chapter 21, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. I looked it up earlier this morning, and we started the Gospel of John in December of 2018. Not 19, but 18, which is wild. Of course, we took a bunch of time off during, you know, that thing that happened in 2020 that shall not be named. But today, we're wrapping up the Gospel of John. Um, Now, we're not going to cover every verse of chapter 21, and so Um, I just want to help us, you know, kind of get the picture. And so one of the ways what we're going to do today is I'm actually just going to read the entire chapter when we do the reading. Um, And so you can walk away from church knowing that you read an entire chapter of the Bible today, which is awesome. And uh, that's how we're going to set it up. But we're primarily going to focus on Jesus and Peter at the end of the chapter. Now, something you may not have heard about before uh, that I just find interesting and kind of unique about the Gospel of John is that um, this chapter in John, chapter 21, is kind of like what we would call an epilogue. Um, It's not that it was added later, but that John added it probably after he was finished writing his initial writing of the Gospel. Uh, And so as I was kind of reading about that this week, I found it really interesting. And so um, basically what I read and what the scholars kind of seem to agree on for the most part is that they're likely that John, so he's an elder at the church at Ephesus, and it's likely that, you know, over the course of time, as elders do, we talk, we, uh, we tell stories, and obviously people are going to ask John the apostle, hey, tell us that story about the time you were on the beach and had the breakfast. And so the other elders at Ephesus likely heard these stories, and when they saw John's initial copy of his gospel, said, no, 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 you got to make sure you add that stuff in there. And so um, that's probably how we got chapter 21. And so here's why I find that interesting and important enough to say, because that is kind of just a trivia tidbit that really doesn't affect uh, the sermon, so to speak. But I find that things like this about the Bible really add depth to what we think of as how we got the Bible, how we got what we call inspiration. So sometimes people tend to think of inspiration like somebody sat down and went into this weird trance and God like took over their hand and they wrote. That's not how it happened. So inspiration is God using the human personality and even, probably in this case, the community of faith to, to begin to write things that then um, we would have later on because of the fact that it's coming to John through uh, the Holy Spirit's inspiration as scripture. And so it's important enough that it was added to our Bibles. And so it seems that God uses the community of the church to speak to one another. And so that's a really important thing. And so it leaves us with this chapter we have today. So let me start by reading it and then we're going to dive in. We're going to actually focus on verses 18 to the end, but I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire chapter for us to start. So uh, this is a very ancient practice in the church of hearing the scriptures read aloud. So I want to invite you to bring your full mind and body and soul into this moment, be present, and let's hear what God has to say to us, his people. This is John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, 
Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to him, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so what John does there at the very end is basically sign his name to this letter saying, this is John, you can trust me. And uh, there was many other things as he has already said before earlier in the gospel of John. And so um, while it's not our main focus today, I do want to just, um, I, I don't want to totally pass over the restoration of Peter by Jesus, right? That's an important part of this story. Uh, it's, it's usually when I've heard this chapter preached, it's, it's one of the ways it's emphasized, and it's a good way. Uh, it's just not where we're going to end today, but we don't want to totally pass it over. And so if you remember back to when Peter denied Jesus before Jesus was crucified, you'll remember that Jesus denied Peter, or Peter denied Jesus. Jesus would never deny you. Peter denied Jesus three times. And so 
Jesus asking Peter three times is a way of Jesus reminding Peter of the restoration that Jesus had accomplished on the cross. And so uh, that's not the only significance of the three questions, though. And this is what I found to be interesting. These questions are also a commissioning for Peter by Jesus. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. And verse 17, feed my sheep. So this is where we get the idea, uh, if you're familiar with the idea of pastors and elders being shepherds in the church, that language, this is part of where we get that idea. This is why Peter in his gospel says, tend the flock of God that is among you, right? So Peter's remembering those words. And so not only is Jesus making sure that Peter knows what his identity is as a loved disciple, Jesus is offering forgiveness to Peter. He's saying, you're restored. But Jesus also wants to give Peter back the dignity of his work in the world. That work, when we work with God, not, not for God, but when we work with God in the world, we have dignity in that because work, God's work is made to be good. This is the same for you and I. There's a work that Jesus has for you in this world that comes along with his restoration of you by faith in him. He's prepared these works for you. And so speaking this three times like this is also a way in Jesus' day and in Peter's day and culture of sort of ceremonializing this moment. To speak something three times in front of witnesses is a way to make this a very solemn thing. So Jesus is really making this an important moment uh, in Peter's life of restoration and of commissioning. And so uh, Jesus is commissioning Peter to a life of serving and of walking with him. And and in our focus today, we're going to see again that a call to restoration and a life of service to Jesus is not a call to ease and comfort and everything going perfectly. Jesus is just honest with us. So let's let's jump in here, starting at verse 18 of John 21. Now, Jesus focuses the conversation here about Peter's service by prophesying. Jesus is speaking prophecy here about future difficulties that are coming to Peter. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, so we stop there. If you know your KJV, that's verily, verily, I say to you. It's important Jesus is making a point to stop you and to stop Peter and say, now listen to me, right? Pay attention, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. So there's basically been two kind of interpretations of what this means, even though John gives us a pretty good clue there in that parentheses, if it's in your translation. Uh, some feel that Jesus is simply telling Peter that, you know, you were, you were a young man, you are a young man, you're able to take care of yourself, uh, you're pretty independent, but someday Father Time is going to have his way and you're going to be an old man and, and you will stretch out your hands to others in order to be helped to get dressed and that you're going to be so dependent on others that you're going to be taken places that you don't want to go. Now, th- this is probably partially true. This is, this is what is going to happen. Uh, but regardless of this difficulty, Peter, you're going to glorify God by your godly demeanor and the way you live your life. Some people see what Jesus prophesied to Peter as simply that, that you're going to get old and instead of being grouchy, you're going to be nice about it when people take you where you don't want to go because you, know, you need the help. 
But the second interpretation is probably much more accurate. This is likely what John is doing here. The second view is that despite um, Peter's age and his infirmity at that point where he needs to be helped, um, he's going to die a martyr's death by crucifixion. And in church history, we know this to be true. This is how Peter dies. And so the giveaway is John's description of Peter's death as a glorification of God, which according to one commentator was standard Christian language for martyrdom, okay? This is standard Christian language of the time for martyrdom, that your death will glorify God. That's what it means. Now, on top of this, early church fathers, including Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and Cyprian, if you don't know those names, that's okay. They're just some of the earliest thinkers, writers, leaders in the history of the church. All of them view this phrase, you will stretch out your hands, as a description, literally, of crucifixion. Okay, And so one of the principles is to say, what did the earliest folks who read this think this meant? And they probably have a pretty good idea. And so if they're all agreed that stretching out hands is a description of crucifixion, that's probably right. And so the sense of Jesus' prophecy to Peter is something like this. Peter, when, you're, when you were young, you, you, you could do what you wanted. You had your way, right? You're strong, you're young, you take care of yourself. You lived your life with independence. But a future time is coming when you, you'll be old and weak and someone else is going to have to care for you and in the end, they're going to bind you and they're even going to take you away and crucify you for me. That's what Jesus is prophesying to Peter. So he's being very explicit with Peter that the life of service that he's calling Peter into, that he's commissioning to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, watch my flock, is going to be difficult. It's going to humiliate Peter's ego, which is, if you know Peter, is kind of a big deal. And it's going to culminate in Peter's own personal crucifixion, right? So Peter's thinking, oh, thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. This This is a hard word from Jesus, but it's the truth. Now, this is not the last story in the history of a church where a follower of Jesus experiences difficulty in their service to God and to Jesus that he called them in. Even fairly recently in our own history as a Christian Missionary Alliance church, we have these kind of stories of lives of service. I want to show you one right now. You may have seen this video if you came to the Night of Generosity. Uh, but for the rest of us, I want to highlight this point by showing you uh, Mabel Francis, who is one of the coolest stories that I know of in the Alliance. So let's watch this together. In 1909, 29-year-old Mabel Francis stepped off the boat in Japan as a hated foreigner and suspected spy. Skip 56 years later. Here is that same woman, Mabel, accepting Japan's highest honorary citizenship the greatest tribute any city can bestow upon a person. How did she go from being hated and distrusted to this? Everything they need for an entire four-year term must be packed with them. A start of adventure with Christ. For more than 130 years, the Alliance has sent workers to people and places that are least open to the gospel. The sacrifice of the senders and the sent has resulted in a great harvest, but often we forget that this fruit had humble beginnings. When Japan opened its borders in the 1850s, they did so with hesitancy. The government knew that traders would be flooding in seeking wealth, 
and the country wanted to ensure its own financial interests. So, when missionaries arrived seeking no personal gain, the Japanese were perplexed. No one could be this altruistic. The natural conclusion was that these foreigners must be spies. Mabel Francis was where I got my initial interest in Japan. This is Don Schaefer, an alliance worker who served in Japan since 1984. She came to our church when I was 10, and I think she was 85, 87. When Mabel was in her late 20s, she wrote to CNMA founder A.B. Simpson, asking to be sent as a missionary to Japan. Her calling was to fulfill the Great Commission and respond to the needs of a lost world. In the early 1900s, mission policy didn't allow single women to travel internationally. Because of her maturity and successful preaching experience, Mabel was granted permission to serve in Japan in 1909. Mabel's brother, Tom, joined her in 1913, and sister, Anne, joined her in 1924. More than 20 churches were formed as a result of their work. In 1939, the National Church became self-sustaining. The Alliance withdrew its workers from Japan. Her brother went home that year and got married. However, Mabel and Anne didn't feel released from God's call to the Japanese people. They chose to stay. War broke out on December 7, 1941. Enter World War II. Concerned for their safety, both the U.S. and the Japanese governments offered the Francis sisters safe passage back to the United States. Remaining in Japan could mean imprisonment or even death. She wanted to be there to help the Japanese when the war ended. They knew the hardship of the war would create greater openness to the gospel among the Japanese, regardless of which side won. So they stayed, without any assurance of their own safety. In 1941, Mabel went under house arrest at the beginning of the war. During this time, she turned her home into a clinic to tend the sick. A year later, Mabel joined her sister in an internment camp near Tokyo, where they remained for three years. It surely was not an easy time. There wasn't a lot of food and all that. I think they were in pretty bad shape. In 1945, as the war intensified, Allied bombs fell dangerously close, turning their camp to flames. They walked through the night, escaping danger. The morning light revealed the unimaginable. Weary, malnourished, and witnessing unthinkable suffering, Mabel wrote that her hope was in the Lord. He was her strength, and that... One miracle followed another. In the midst of reconstruction after the war, Mabel ministered to the Japanese in their deep pain. She traveled all over, specifically to Matsuyama, her hometown, seeking to give hope and rebuild the church. She then traveled to Hiroshima, which is crazy because this happened, where she led many survivors of the atomic bomb to Christ and organized a church and a Bible school. In the four years after the war, Mabel and her sister planted six new churches, plus a Bible school, and multiple grade schools, orphanages, and medical clinics, and the list goes on. Seeing the great need for the gospel in post-war Japan, Mabel wrote to the CNMA Missions Board, asking them to send workers back to Japan. When the CNMA responded to her plea to return to the land of the rising sun, Mabel was there with open arms. Nearly two decades after the war, Mabel and her sister were asked to return to the States to interpret for a Japanese pastor. But before leaving the U.S., the Japanese emperor held a special ceremony for Mabel on May 7, 1962. She was decorated with the Fifth Order of the Sacred Treasure, the highest honor Japan bestows on any foreigner. Remember this? This courageous woman was honored for her contribution, 
to the welfare of the Japanese people in their distress and confusion at the time of their defeat in World War II, and for the long years spent in leading hundreds of Japanese to the knowledge of God. What have been some of your greatest moments of exaltation in your life? Well, I hardly know there have been so many. <laughs> when I have seen someone in sorrow, and they didn't know any way out, and they had no hope, then to see them come to the sense that there is a God in heaven that loves them, and then see the light break over their faces. There's nothing on earth that can be compared to it. There is no other hope. And it's for us to find a way to get God to them. such a maverick. I love it. I love the, uh, just the kind of, I don't know, it's like rebellion, but good rebellion to say, no, I'm staying. And I I just love that about that story. So why would someone like Mabel, why would someone like Peter be willing to follow Jesus into such difficulty? Why? The apostle Paul also, who had a pretty difficult life in, in following and serving uh, Jesus with Jesus in the world. Uh, Paul gives words to explain this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That Mabel and Peter and Paul and many, many, many of us in the Christian faith are so captured by the love of Christ for us that would compel him to die for us that we will follow Jesus even if it means uh, we will not go where we want to go. Our hands will be stretched out to glorify Jesus. And so we no longer live for ourselves but for Jesus. And, and actually the word translated controls there is uh, one definition I saw that was really helpful for me was that it's, it's the way that a guard keeps hold of a prisoner that he doesn't want to escape. So the love of Jesus grips us, grabs onto us so that we can't help but live for him no matter the cost. And remember, Jesus tells us to count that cost. And so for Peter, what did this mean? It meant obedience. It meant obedience to Jesus, right? Back in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. A little later in John 14, Jesus again says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the Christian faith, discipleship to Jesus is a, uh, is a faith of obedience, it is a faith of feeling the love of Christ in us, but that love then leads to obedience. So true obedience to Christ isn't how we gain the love of Christ, because that would never work, but instead it's the outflow 
of the love of Christ that we've experienced, which is the same thing that Peter would need in those days. And so the, the love of Christ so grips us that, that we no longer want to live for ourselves, but we want to live for him and do for him what he wants us to do in the world. And that means obedience and mission and hardship and difficulty, maybe even death. And back here, back in John 21, Peter was told that he would especially glorify God through his death. Like, I know all of us want to know, what's the will of God for my life? And what if Jesus appeared to you in a dream and said, the will of God for your life is that you would glorify God by your crucifixion? Would we want that? When Paul wrote to the Philippians, while he was in prison, by the way, right? He said this in Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but what also suffer for his sake. And, and I think sometimes we categorize suffering way too easily. Like suffering can only mean imprisonment and death. But no, suffering for the sake of Christ can mean inconvenience. It can mean spending money in a way that you don't necessarily want to do it, but you know, I, want to, I love Jesus, loves me, and I want to obey him and glorify him in the world, and I'm going to do this, or I'm going to spend my time this way, or I'm going to give this thing away, or I'm going to do this thing, even though it's kind of inconvenient and frustrating, and I don't really want to do it. This is what this means for us, that, that if our lives, and hear me, if our lives are characterized by ease and comfort as Christians, if we never have any problems or difficulties because of our Christianity, not because we're jerks to people, but because of our Christianity, which remember is based on the love of Christ controlling us, if obeying Jesus' call to follow him as he loves the world and those in it never costs us anything, never inconveniences us, never asks us to be somewhere we don't want to be or do something we don't want to do, then it's likely that something is wrong. John Stott, the famous Bible teacher, was preaching on 2 Corinthians 5, and he said this at his church in London. If nobody opposes our Christianity... It is because really there is nothing to oppose in it. My own conviction for what it's worth is that if we Christians were to compromise less, we would undoubtedly suffer more. If we were to really maintain the high moral standards of Jesus, of uncorruptible honesty and integrity and of costly self-sacrificial love, then there would be a public outcry that the church had returned to Puritanism. If we were to dare once more to talk plainly about the alternatives of life and death, salvation and judgment, heaven and hell, then the world would rise up in anger against such, quote, old-fashioned rubbish. Physical violence, imprisonment, and death may not be the fate of Christians in the West today, but faithfulness to Jesus Christ will, without doubt, without doubt, bring ridicule and ostracism. This should not surprise us, however, for we are followers of the suffering Christ. We are not followers of a famous leader. We are followers of an unknown, small sect whose leader was crucified. Now, you know, we have to acknowledge that in many ways, it seems like maybe things have moved towards what some of Stott said there. There is, in some ways, rising hostility to what we believe, but our response to that is not to wring our hands and wish for the good old days when we didn't have that hostility. Our response to that is the same response that always should have been, which is to love people. 
Again, I want to point you to Jesus' words in John 21 to Peter and the ending line from that quote from John Stott. This should not surprise us, however, for we are followers of a suffering Christ. Christ wanted Peter to know that if he would truly serve him, it was going to be difficult. If they crucified Jesus, what will they do to you? And this is what he wants us to know too. Let's, let's keep going here to close this book out. So now back to the story in John 21. Apparently Jesus and Peter are talking. And as they're talking over this like breakfast fire, they walk away from the fire on the beach and they begin walking together. And, and apparently John is not far behind them. The, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved, he's not far behind them. And then as they're walking and John is kind of following along, Jesus makes this prophecy to Peter. That's kind of the, the setting here. And so Peter, apparently noticing John nearby, right? And, and probably kind of feeling uncomfortable about what Jesus just said to him. Like, oh man, really? He asked Jesus to then explain what's going to happen in John's future. Right? Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is that that is going to betray you? That could have all been summarized by me. Right? John could have said, Peter turned and saw me, John. And when Peter saw him, John, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to get old and you're not going to be able to care for yourself and your hands are going to be stretched out. And Peter's like, oh man, but what about him? This is classic Peter. This is, this is Peter all the way. He, he loved Jesus with all his heart and he's just been restored. He's just been commissioned. And yet right away, he kind of loses focus, right? And so he can't help himself. And Jesus responds in verse 22, modern translation, what's it to you? Right? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, don't concern yourself with what I choose to do with the lives of my other servant. Just keep following me. This is like the stage of life that I'm in with the age of uh, my daughter journey, right? She has a friend who's the same age. And if I could tell you, the, if I had a nickel for the number of times that the parents say like, hey, don't worry about her. You just do this. We'd be gazillionaires. And, and this is kind of what's going on here. Don't concern yourself with what I'm doing in the lives of other people to the point where you're comparing yourself. Just follow me, right? Partly Jesus is speaking. I think what he's partly doing here, the reason his tone is the way it is, is because that's how Peter interacts. Like Peter seems like, if you read the Gospels, Peter's a pretty blunt guy. So Jesus speaks to him in that kind of language. But don't don't take that as unloving or dismissive from Jesus. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not discouraging Peter to be interested in the welfare of other people. No. That's not what's happening here. Peter is falling prey to, I think, one of our enemy's most effective tools in sort of derailing our own ability to follow Jesus, and that is comparison. Comparing ourselves to other disciples will just wreak havoc on your walk with Jesus because your eyes are now on them. And the same is true with Peter and the same is true with us. Having worried about what's going on with John, he's going to be unable to fulfill his own commissioning that Jesus just gave him. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And he's like, what about him? And Jesus is like, what about you? 
You follow me, feed my sheep. If you're constantly worrying about someone else's calling from Jesus and what gifts did they have and how come they have this and I didn't get that, you will not have the time or the energy to walk with Jesus, listen to his words to you, uh, and, and, and listen to the three simple words that Jesus speaks to Peter here that he speaks to us. You follow me. You just worry about following Jesus And you let him worry about everything else because your worry about everything else gets you nowhere. So I want to share this with you. This week I was using, uh, this is like a journaling Bible and I was like drawing all over it and writing stuff down to kind of read and get ready. And, And this is what I wrote down. This is how I summarized the end of John 21. Life will get hard. Stay in your lane. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have drawn us into community. You've made us a family. But at the same time, you still care about us as individuals. And and in so many ways, we need to be reminded of community. We need to open ourselves up to the life of the community. But in other ways, in ways that our enemy wants to use against us, we need to focus only on you and keep our eyes on you and follow you. And not worry about what you're doing in the lives of of other people in terms of their gifting and their calling and how that's going to work. But we follow you along with one another and we go where you are leading us. And so I pray that as a church family, as a, as a community of Christians among the churches in this neighborhood and in this city, that you would help us to follow you individually so that corporately we might be your presence in the world. We thank you that we've been able to gather together this morning and that we've been able to spend some time praying that we have heard this encouraging story from our own, uh, our own stream of Christianity's history. I pray that that would encourage us to go and, and follow you and obey your call to love along with you in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.